Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief for WFIU and WTIU. Earlier this month, Indiana Supreme Court Chief Justice Loretta Rush praised Indiana's drug courts in her State of the Judiciary address. Today on Noon Edition, we're going to discuss the utility and efficiency of such courts and how they're working in Indiana and across the nation. We have two great guests that are joining us today. One is here in the studio with us, uh, Judge Mary Ellen Decoff. Judge Decoff is with the Tenth Circuit Court in here in Monroe County, and she handles um, the drug court as part of her duties. And Mike Rempel is joining us by phone. Mike is with, uh, he's a research director for the Center for Court Innovation in New York. It's, uh, the center is a think tank that uh, looks into to different ways that courts can be handled, um, including drug courts. So if you have questions or comments, please phone us at 812-855-0811 in the Bloomington area and 877-285-9348 outside of Bloomington. And also WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is our web address if you want to join a conversation online. And you can even follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So we're happy to talk about this this topic. I ran into the judge the other day, and we had a conversation about drug court. So, Mary Ellen, how long have you been um, involved in drug court? I became in dr- I became involved in drug court um, sometime around 2000. I was just sitting here trying to think about that actually. Mm-hmm. Um, sometime around 2008. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. been it's been we've had a drug court in um, Monroe County since 1999. And Judge Ken Todd was the yes. judge before you that handled drug court. So could you just sort of give us a you know a thumbnail of of what your responsibilities are and what what the goal of drug court is here in Monroe County? Um, the drug treatment court um, is a deemed a problem-solving court. They exist because of uh, the legislature um, and the Indiana Supreme Court, who um, has to authorize the um, inception of these courts. The purpose of the drug treatment court is to um, ha- the participants have been charged with felonies, criminal felonies. You do not necessarily have to have a drug-related felony to get into drug treatment court, but you have to be in the criminal justice system charged with a crime um, due to your use um, and abuse of drugs. The whole purpose of the court, then, is to get you into the program, um, get you um, sober, um, and work on your living a sober lifestyle and getting you out of the criminal justice system. It's a two-year program. Um, once the charges are filed by the prosecutor's office, they have to approve someone being um, evaluated from drug treatment for the drug treatment court. There's a team of people actually who do the evaluation. Um, the team consists of myself, a representative from law enforcement, a representative from the public defender's office, a representative from the prosecutor's office, a representative from the treatment community, 
and then the participant is evaluated. They're evaluated by a treatment provider that, yes, in fact, they do have a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction problem. Their criminal history is looked at. You cannot be a violent offender to come into the Drug Treatment Court program. Um, typically, our folks have a history of criminal charges. They have had also a history of being on probation or in treatment and failing that at some point in time. And then they come into the program. It's a voluntary program. They plead guilty to the charges they're um, facing. They also agree to abide by all the rules and regulations of the Drug Treatment Court program. The carrot for them is that their charges are dismissed after two years if they successfully complete the program. If they don't, they're terminated from the program and subject to sentencing based upon their original charges. Um, we, it's a very, very intense program. It's highly supervised. Its um, whole main focus is on the individual's addiction issues and how best to treat that so that we can get them out of the system. Okay, well, let's turn to uh, Mike Rempel. Um, Mike studies courts and different, different kind of court uh, structures. So how well do drug courts work across the country, Mike? All right, well, there are a couple answers to that. The first answer is overall they work well, and on average uh, there, there have been close to 100 studies of these drug court programs, and they average about a one-quarter reduction in the recidivism rate compared to what it would have been in the absence of drug court. Now, that's part of the story. The second part of the story is that they don't all average the same recidivism reduction. Actually, about one in five drug courts have little effect, about two in five hit that average, and then you see some drug courts that really reduce the recidivism rate in half. And, uh, and if, I, if I could, actually, the judge just pointed to a number of ways in which some drug courts can perform better than others, and I was actually interested in the judge's description. She described her court as serving felony offenders, and we find that the felony drug courts tend to perform better than the misdemeanor drug courts because the felony population has more of an incentive to participate and more of an incentive to stay engaged since the consequences will be more severe for them if they fail the program. She also identified her program as one that tends to focus on a population that has failed treatment in the past, maybe has prior criminal involvement in the past. And here, this can be a little bit counterintuitive sometimes that this is a good target population, but it really a high-risk target population that does have a prior criminal history is a great target population for drug courts that really want to maximize their effects. Sometimes you can see a program that maybe doesn't want to take a chance, so they focus more on a, a low-risk population, maybe a population without a lot of priors. The problem is that a low-risk population, in the absence of the program, they're not going to reoffend. but if you put them in the program, you might actually put them in treatment groups with high-risk individuals and actually increase the recidivism rate. So, um, so again, the story is one of success for drug courts, but also one of variation based on their policies. And, and a couple of things the judge mentions, books on felonies, focusing on a high-risk population, and, and in general, taking advantage of the, um, of the ability of a judge and of the ability of the court to incentivize participation and to incentivize staying engaged in treatment is very important. What we found in the past is when, you, when someone attends treatment voluntarily, their graduation rate is going to be less than a quarter. But the court actually has an opportunity to take people in the justice system who have an addiction problem and get them much higher treatment graduation rates. And our Chief Justice, as we were, as Bob said earlier, said during her State of the Judiciary that she sees this model as one that works and she wants to see it expanded. But based on what you're saying, it seems like 
um, you've got to have maybe like a lot of buy-in from the, the county where you're going to have it? Or sort of what are the, the measures of success here? Is it possible to replicate this throughout the counties? I'll, I'll, I'll throw that out, out, I guess, to both of you. Michael, you want to start? Sure. Well, again, in terms of measures of success, you typically look at the treatment retention rate because we know from prior research that when individuals who need treatment stay engaged in treatment, then inherently their outcomes are going to be better. And you probably look for something like a, like a 50 to 60 percent completion rate. Now, many of your, your uh, listeners may think that sounds kind of low, but again, remember, people who attend drug treatment voluntarily, their completion rates hover between 10 and 25 percent. So when you can hit 50 to 60 percent. That's a pretty dramatic improvement. So you look at that, and then you look at, uh, at reducing recidivism. Ultimately, drug courts are trying to protect the public. There are different strategies for protecting the public than incarceration, but it is ultimately what they're trying to do. So you tend to look a lot at, at recidivism. And as I mentioned, the average recidivism reduction is good, but through certain kinds of practices, you can really increase that a lot. And the final thing that I'd like to look at is volume. Um, when drug courts can really have an impact on the system is when they move beyond maybe being a boutique program that serves maybe 20, 20 individuals a year. And, you know, we like to look at some of the programs that are really able to, to uh, have a real process for screening large numbers of defendants and, and really make sure that everyone who can benefit are identified, just so it's not a boutique program that's very effective for the people they serve, though they may not serve that many people. Judge, there's a lot for you to respond to mm-hmm. there. So first, I'd like to know the the recidivism rate or the you know the su- success rate, I guess, of, of drug court here in Monroe County. Um, in studies that were done, um, our Monroe County participants, whether they graduated successfully from the program or not, were half as likely half as likely as the other general uh, uh, criminal population to ha- um, have any arrest within the two year follow up period that mm-hmm. we do after they leave the program. Of our graduates, um, I cannot say the, that word, the R word. I don't know why. I can say reoffend, but I cannot say. <laughs> I don't know why that. I cannot say it. Um, <laughs> it just it doesn't roll off my tongue. But um, our rate is um, 11% um, it, it, uh, when they do successfully complete the program. So only 11%, only one out of 10 would reoffend within that two-year period? Yeah. So, okay. I mean, we, we um, we're really pleased about our um, statistics and our our, um, our rates of individuals, especially when they graduate. And in speaking to the other thing that Mike said, um, right now we currently have 94 participants in our program, and it is one of the largest uh, drug mm-hmm. treatment court programs in the state. Is it one of the oldest? It is. Also? It's also okay. one of the oldest. Okay. Um, and I will probably also say that um, on our 10-year anniversary in 2009, um, we became only uh, one of 10 of, there are 2,300 drug courts nationwide, and um, we received the Community Transformation Award from the Nas- National Association of Drug Court Professionals for the um, efforts we've made to foster community transformation through reducing addiction and crime. So we're really, really proud of our drug court. We, we frequently get um, other counties who come and want to observe it and want to um, look at our guidelines and look at um, how we do things because um, we really do, um, as Mike said, we, we appreciate the idea that there's a large population that needs to be served by this court, um, and we try to take as many as we can. Unfortunately, um, we have the same funding 
problems that other courts and programs have, and we would take more if we had the ability to have more funding to be able to do that, which is, um, I think, one of the chief justices' um, concerns when she also talks about problem-solving courts is getting the funding. Can you give us a little historical perspective, too, Judge? Uh, you know, I, I would assume that that 11 percent uh, reoffend rate uh, now wasn't probably the same in 1999 and, and maybe early in the years. Do you have any longitudinal data? You may not have brought it with you, but is that something you, you guys have ever studied? Um, to be perfectly honest, no. I mean, uh, there might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my, uh, uh, my case supervisor, my uh, program manager, he probably knows he's a statistics person. Uh-huh. Um, I can tell you, though, that we've expanded greatly the number since 1999 of the participants that we do have. So um, I my perception of it is is the same as anything else is the more you do it the better you get at it because every time you do something you learn something Mm -hmm. that you didn't know before or some program comes into being that you didn't have before Um, one of the things that I will say about the participants in our program is uh, they're very innovative uh, when they think of try to find ways to abuse drugs or get drugs. So we're constantly responding to that as well, as well as, long, as, well as unfortunately, um, new drugs or synthetic drugs come into being rapidly. Mm-hmm. And so we also have to work hard to get more knowledgeable than our participants. Let me ask a variation of that to Mike, uh, Mike Rimpel from the uh, Center for Court Innovation. So over time, I, I think uh, Judge Dekoff said 2,300 drug courts around the country. Is that, was that the number you used? Yes. Yeah, that, so. that, that's about right. Actually, uh, uh, somewhat less than that are adult drug courts, and then there are okay. also programs that serve juvenile defendants and some that, uh, that actually deal with families in abuse and neglect cases that are handled in family courts. So how has that grown over, over time? Yeah, the uh, the number of programs has really skyrocketed over time. So the first drug court was established in Miami by Janet Reno in 1989 when she was uh, the attorney the attorney general in the, uh, uh, down down there in Miami, and 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 actually in the, the history is interesting. The first drug court was established down there less because they were trying to reduce recidivism or protect the public necessarily or rehabilitate offenders. It was really established in the first place for reasons of efficiency because they were overwhelmed by drug cases on their court dockets. So they wanted to put all those cases before a single judge. So it started really for very much efficiency reasons and then over over time. And so it really took until about 2000. I think when we got to about 2000, really 10 years later, we might have been up to maybe 400 drug courts in the country. And so it's then in the last 15 years when the numbers have increased about about another 2,000 to, to the one you cited. And, and over time, in the course of the 90s, the, um, the reason for these programs tended to have a lot more to do with rehabilitation. They tended to have a lot more to do with recidivism reduction. And the kinds of efficiency concerns that actually motivated the program in the first place tend to become less important. In fact, now drug courts don't mind if they're inefficient. They can be inefficient because they keep their cases a long time. But if that inefficiency is leading to positive outcomes because of the fact that they're keeping these cases, monitoring them, getting the, uh, the defendants retained in treatment, then that's now that's considered a positive outcome. 
Okay. Can we, I mean, maybe you can answer, maybe even put a face on this. Like, what does a success story look like and what does a failure look like, Michael? What does a success look like? What does a failure look like? You know, when we do research, a success looks like less likely to reoffend than otherwise. When we see the people, and I know the judge probably runs these, I've been to many drug court graduations. When you see the success, you see someone who looks very different than when they first came in. You see someone who physically looks better. You see someone who, in the graduation ceremonies, may be able to give a speech about how they've been able to change their life around. You see uh, uh, maybe some evidence of employment, and you see people, you know, maybe um, reporting how they feel more confident in their ability to find work. So kind of a combination of the numbers, knowing that the public is protected, and then knowing that people's lives are changed. I do you know, like to emphasize the public safety outcomes because ultimately I think that's what generates support for doing more of these kinds of programs. But when you take a real human being, when you take a real person, success kind of looks like that. And, you know, failure looks like um, an inability to complete. You know, and as I said, remember, the vast majority of individuals in treatment voluntarily don't complete, and that happens in drug courts, too. Um, sometimes, you know, someone might not complete, but maybe they get a little benefit through maybe the treatment readiness, through understanding what treatment is like, and maybe they'll complete next time. But the failure means they kind of look the same, means they're not employed, means they're still reoffending. Mm-hmm. Judge, how about some individual, like an individual case that a success in a in a unsuccessful treatment no names of course <laughs> um to us a successful a success looks like um a person we just had a couple people graduate um in fact last week um and truly uh, we we have uh, our basic participant um well um we had a mother lost her children uh, she hadn't the the formal adoption hadn't gone through yet, but her children were um, being taken care of by relatives. She hadn't had a job. Uh, she couldn't stay um, sober or um, not using drugs for longer than probably five days. Um, her family wouldn't talk to her. Her family didn't trust her, um, and she entered into the drug treatment court program. Um, when she graduated from the program, she had her children back. She was fully employed. Um, she was proud of the fact that her parents had left to go on a two-week vacation, asked her to watch the house while she was gone, while they were gone. Um, she was um, proud of the fact, and this, this is always interesting to me, but my participants are always very um, proud of the fact that they um, have jobs and they're paying taxes, um, like, you know, they say like a normal person. Um, and, you know, one of, one of the things that w- always really makes us the happiest is since the inception of the program, we've had 45 drug-free babies born. So we have, you know, 45 little people who have entered the world um, free of drugs with people who will know how to take care of them and take care of them. Um, so that to us is what a success story looks like um they're not going to the doctor all the time because they have some illness that you know oh i need drugs judge i need um, i need help because i've hurt my back um and they're proud of themselves they're proud of what they're able to do they're proud of uh, how um, their family feels about them um, they're back in relationships so to us those are success stories and 
every single time we get one, we realize that this is surely why we do this. And um, Mike is exactly right. One of the biggest, um, I believe, impediments to counties starting drug treatment court programs is because there's a concern that um, do you have um, the community is going to be concerned about safety. Um, well, we keep this individual um, so um, supervised. In fact, our, our participants' biggest complaints, especially when they first come into the program, because the program, you, we move you along during those two years, so you start um, weekly sessions and then biweekly and then monthly and then bimonthly. But in the beginning, their biggest complaint is, I don't have any time to do anything. I go to treatment, I go to meetings, I go to work, I come home and I'm tired, and my response is always, that's good. That's what exactly what we want you to be complaining about. So we, you know, we, we do... Um, very um, highly supervise them. And, and Mike is right. Our program especially, we're taking high-risk offenders. We're taking people charged with felonies, people who have felonies in their past. So it is a concern we're always conscious of with the community. But this community, Monroe County, has always been very supportive of drug treatment court and very supportive of what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and, and as I've said, I've, I've talked to many judges who in their communities, they're concerned that when they put it out there that it's going to be perceived as being soft on crime or soft on drugs or soft on the defendant. But um, my response always is eventually the, you will be dealing with these people. Again, if you don't address the, their underlying issue, then you will just keep seeing them. You'll be using the resources for them, whether it's jail or prison or other treatment options. So... Um, it, it's it's very worthwhile. A failure to us, unfortunately, is someone who um, continues to use or, and abuse drugs um, uh, or continues to um, does not does just doesn't want to participate in the requirements of the program, doesn't want to get a job, um, fights us about going to treatment or goes to treatment and doesn't really um, participate in treatment. Um, and we work really hard not to terminate people from the program because we understand addiction, especially in the beginning, we're, we're, we're fighting behaviors. We're, we're not only fighting the addiction, we're fighting the behaviors that come with that addiction. So we have to change that lifestyle, and it takes time, and we understand that. But occasionally we get folks who just aren't ready to give up a certain lifestyle. Mm -hmm. All right, we've, we have sped through the first half of the program today. Let me give our phone numbers, so if you have questions or comments, you can join us for the second half. 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. Those of you in New York with Mike Rempel, you could get, reach us by wfiu.org slash noon edition, or at noon edition is our Twitter handle. You can also follow us on Twitter. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. 
and you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with co-host Sarah Whitmeyer from WFIU and WTIU. We're talking about drug treatment court uh, here in Monroe County and throughout the the country uh, with Mary Ellen Dekoff, the judge, 10th Circuit Court judge here in Monroe County, and Mike Rempel, research director of the Center for Court Innovation in New York. If you want to join us on the program, 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I'm wondering, are we seeing more interest in drug courts now because of the increase in opiate abuse? And maybe both of you can can speak to that. Like you said, yours had been going on since 1999 here in Monroe County, but this idea of we need to expand this to every county, is this is this a new way of thinking maybe as a way to sort of get our get our heads around this opiate addiction? I think it's I definitely think that it, it is a way of thinking that um, opiate addiction is increasing rapidly and the idea being that if you can address the the um, individual who's addicted to the opiates by putting them in a treatment-type program. Um, And as Mike mentioned earlier, it's a treatment-type program which has teeth to it. It's not a voluntary program. You can start and stop whatever. You um, have agreed to go and do this, and there's some teeth. You've pled guilty to criminal charges. Um, So, yes, I think that the the interest is is, um, we need to deal with these individuals and Obviously, the research is showing that by placing these people just in prisons and or jails is not going to s- solve the underlying problem. Mike? You know, I, I can't point to specific data in terms of drug courts increasing as a result of heroin. What I actually think is generating growing interest in drug courts and similar programs over just the last few years has been increasing focus on, ma- focus on uh, mass incarceration. And that focus, we've heard it in the, uh, in, uh, from political candidates for president. We've heard, it from, um, we've heard it from private foundations that are now funding programs to reduce incarceration. We've heard it in the context of concerns about racial disproportionalities and who is incarcerated. And as we have this growing attention to incarceration, here we have drug courts, a model that currently serves about 55,000 participants every year across the country, and it has these proven results. So I think people are starting to look at, uh, at drug courts in two ways. One is a model that maybe could be expanded, but another is a model whose practices maybe can be learned from in an effort to reduce incarceration on a, on a much broader scale than drug courts do right now, even as they reach that 55,000. Mike, we've been talking uh, primarily, at least uh, from the Monroe County angle here, about adult drug courts. And I wonder, how, how are juvenile drug courts uh, operated? Are they operated in a similar way? And what's the su- success rate of juvenile drug courts? Oh. 
Okay, juvenile drug courts are, are a real interesting story. Yes, they do operate very similarly, but understand that they're juveniles. What does that mean, that they're juveniles? Well, first of all, that means that the substance addiction tends to be a little bit less important than the, in the adult programs. A lot of juveniles, and we can be talking 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, depending on what the state is and, and how they define juveniles as opposed to adults, but at those ages, we we see a lot less addiction than we do in older ages. So what that means is that for juvenile programs to be effective, they have to provide treatment and they have to provide services other than services for addiction. And actually, you could make the same argument for the adult programs, but that especially applies with the juveniles. So we're really concerned about things like peer influences in the juvenile drug courts. And in fact, some research has indicated that juvenile drug courts that uh, use certain uh, evidence-based practices where you try to actually separate the kids from their peers and give them sort of intensive support where they don't necessarily attend groups with their peers or they're not in as much contact with their peers, that those kinds of um, interventions can be effective in juveniles. So you're trying to deal with antisocial peer influences. You're trying to deal with impulsive behavior. You're trying to deal with a lot of acting before thinking and really work on sort of the impulsivity that comes with being in your being in your teens. It's biological. And you know, and finally you're trying to deal with um with leisure time. We know that uh, how kids spend their leisure time is actually a risk factor for criminal behavior if they're if they don't have pro social activities to engage them during the day when they're not in school. So you're trying to deal with school performance, school attendance and use of leisure time. So all of these other problems unrelated to drugs become especially important to address with the juvenile drug courts. Now, that's leading to the punchline, which is that the, um, the results for juvenile drug courts, if you take a national average of the studies that have been conducted, on net, they're in the black, on net, the average juvenile drug court reduces the recidivism rate, but the effect sizes are, are really about half as much as you see with the adult programs, and researchers who have tried to tease out why have looked at some of the things I just outlined that, you know, many of the programs don't quite have the treatment resources to focus on the multitude of needs that kids have. Sometimes some programs might not focus on school issues, might not focus on leisure time, you know, as I mentioned. So the, um, in some ways it's harder for a juvenile program to be effective. It doesn't mean it can't be effective. Research has shown that if they focus on the right things, juvenile drug courts can work well. But on average, because of the unique challenges of the kids, the results are a little bit less positive than with the adult programs that we talked about earlier. Okay, so I have a follow-up question. That really that that piqued a, a question in my mind. Uh, we have a, a brain scientist in Bloomington named Jill Bolte Taylor who talks a lot about how the human brain is developing until you're 25 years old, uh, and that you know these risk factors are are still happening for people in their their early 20s. So I wonder, have you done research on adults who go through through drug court in terms of the success rate based on age. Are older drug court um, participants more successful than younger? Yes, we've looked at that, and the story is the story is twofold. The results with the adult programs are that the uh, that the younger defendants, and so we're primarily talking about 
you know, ages, let's say 18 to 24, something like that, where their brains are still developing, they do perform just as well as the older populations. At the same time, just to say that they perform as well doesn't mean that they don't need specialized services given that their brains are still developing. So the uh, uh, so I guess the good news is that once you hit around 18 to 19 and you get a little bit more brain development, you also get a little bit more likelihood of actually having a drug addiction, which is what drug courts are set up to address, that you do start to get these very positive results that you see with adults generally as compared with the really younger kids where the research really shows that the program model to be effective has to be quite a bit more different. Okay. Judge? Um, what I would say to that is is that we look very carefully at um, any participant truly who is under the age of 30 and definitely under the age of 26. Um, primarily because they we, we're asking them to change their lifestyle. And one of the things that they want to do, that their friends do, is to go to the bars and to socialize where there's alcohol and or some type of drugs. So it is true that they can be successful, but it is also true that in a lot of ways they're not quite ready to give up a certain lifestyle. And they haven't quite seen the long-range, long-term effects of what this drug abuse or alcoholism is going to do to them, unlike the participants who are older. And that's one of the benefits I really do see of the drug, of drug treatment courts. When we meet in court um, and, and the participants are together, I will have the older participants, um, and they will talk about losing their family, losing their jobs, losing their house, hitting rock bottom. And then the younger participants will actually be able to see a, a person, you know, who has gone through it, who is going through it, talking about how this, is, how this can affect your life, which is much more effective than teachers telling them or even judges telling them. Um, because at that age, there's and mostly what we get from that age is, yeah, well, I do this, but I can stop. I, I know I can stop without anything else. I can just stop. And my answer is always, and that's worked for you how well so far. This, <laughs> you know, you're 24. This is your third felony. I don't, how is this working for you? But that's their perception. Are there limitations placed on you as a judge in terms of the sentences or, or how you, like, how much discretion you have in a drug court that's, that's different from regular court? The biggest difference is is um, I see these I see the participants every week, um, especially in the beginning because of court and um, the drug court team meets every Tuesday at noon and we talk about the participants and their progress and then when they come to court we talk about their progress and talk about incentives to help them through the program or sanctions if they're not doing so well. So one of the big differences is is when I get to sentencing, um, they have pled open. So if they've pled guilty to a um, burglary. Um, I have within the legislative range of penalties, I have those range of penalties to sentence them. Um, they're told when they come into the program that this is the most intense alternative sentencing program Monroe County has. So in all probability, they're going to be incarcerated somewhere. It's not a threat, but it's a they, people need to be fully informed when they give up their rights, one, and they agree to what this voluntary court regulations are. One of the most difficult things for me as the judge is, is that I have come to know these people. You know, I, I've talked to them and I've, I've, I've seen their progress or their lack thereof. Um, 
you know, especially the ones who have, um, um, we've had a couple who have tried to deal drugs out of drug court. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'm having to deal with their, them and then the, the integrity of the program. So, um, and truly, I, t- I tell each participant this, and it is the absolute truth. When I have to, when we get to a sentencing and I'm sentencing somebody who's been terminated and the team votes on the termination, um, I'm not party to that vote uh, because uh, since I am going to have to sentence them, the, the team. Uh, who's um, the team? Um, as I told you, it's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's okay. you know, made up of those individuals right. from the okay. community. And so, but what I really am um, disappointed and I never think about. Um, the sentencing until I have to get to one because I truly believe when we start this and they start this that they're going to get through this program and that's what our goal is and our goal is to help them do that. So um, it is different, very different when you when I'm sentencing drug court participants. It is never easy and not that it's easy to sentence anyone, but it's um, and the the other thing is, is that there are some things I would like to do, um, like while they're in the program, um, if they've if they've been at a um, halfway house or uh, um, you know, they'll have a, um, say, a, a ceremony or a party, and I don't go to those because the the way that my ethical rules are, if I start showing up at social functions, then, you know, there is still the concern of my being not on record with them or dealing with them. And so I would like to do things, and I tell them. I w- wish I could have been there. I would have liked to have been there. But, the you know, m- my ethical rules dictate that it's best that I'm, but I'm not. Now, once they graduated, I've been invited to things, and. I'll, I'll go. Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone numbers again, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. And WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is our, where you can go for an online chat and at Noon Edition if you want to follow us on Twitter. We actually got um, an email in from, I think, one of your success stories and saying that this person is actually in drug treatment court with you right now. And everything you've said is completely true and refreshing to hear, saying in the beginning it was very tough and the person wasn't very successful because of Judge Decoff and her team not giving up. He's been sober a year, has a great job, home, wife, and a baby on the way. So drug court works as long as you work and put in the time saying he's living proof of that. All right. There's an endorsement for you. <laughs> Mike, I want to ask you a question because, you, you, you know, you've, you've been, as a researcher, you've been in many, many courts, I, I assume, to see how they operate. I mean, if you were to walk into a drug court today, I mean, how quickly can you tell whether it's a drug court that you think is going to be, a, you know, a generally a successful court uh, versus one that may need a little bit of work? Can you tell just you know, like when you first walk in? Um, you know, when you first walk in, you're looking at the layout. What I like to look at is I like to look at where the, the participant is going to stand and where the judge is. I'd like them to be unobstructed. We, we, we kind of look at the architecture a little bit. We look at are there a lot of clerks, are there a lot of desks kind of in the way, or is there a, a, an opportunity for a sort of an unblocked, unmediated interaction between the judge and the participant. So, I mean, that tells us a little bit. To be honest, can I say whether a drug court is effective, you know, just from that when I walk in, no. But we do these things when we go in, we do, we go in with, with forms and we code every single court appearance we see. And if we see a drug court session with more than, let's say, 20 
20 appearances, we're coding all 20 of them, and it will give us a good idea of, you know, did the, uh, we code every appearance? Did the judge ask the participant uh, a probing question that requires a little bit more than a one-word answer? Did the, uh, did the judge give information, maybe remind the participant about the consequences of noncompliance? Maybe there would be a sanction. Maybe there would be a day in jail. Did the judge recode whether uh, uh, the judge reminds the participant of the consequences of compliance? As in, remember, if at the end of the line, if you stay in treatment, what you're doing, your case will be dismissed. We'd like to see those reminders because the participants, you know, we may think we remember things easily or surely we know these things or surely we know that our case can be dismissed. But a lot of research shows that you really do need to do all these reminders. So we code a bunch of things like that, and having done that in a single drug court session, we could probably tell you when the session is over how that program is scoring on measures of judicial demeanor and measures of just kind of reminding the participants of why it's important to stay engaged. And actually, statistically, we did a, a national study along with the Urban Institute several years ago where we coded 23 drug courts in this way. And at the end of the day, we actually found that the drug courts that scored better based on our having observed a single session indeed produced larger magnitude recidivism reductions than the drug courts in their session that didn't score so well. So drug courts in general do very well at something that we call procedural justice, which has to do with treating the defendant fairly, explaining the rules clearly, avoiding legal jargon, making the defendant feel that their voice is being heard in proceedings. But again, we also see variations. So some drug courts are better or worse than others at this. And you really can see at the end of the day, statistically, that these things, what happens in the appearance, it's quite predictive of recidivism reduction. So it's pretty amazing. And Judge, you were talking about the makeup of the drug courts here, how the prosecutor's office has a representative law enforcement. How, how are those folks chosen? What sort of credentials do they need to have to be that representative? Basically, um, we have the, the public defender's um, representative is um, chosen by their office. But it, typically, the people are on our team are people who are interested in um, addiction and interested in um, this type of program. So the prosecutor's office, clearly, um, they have to be highly supportive, and the prosecutor here is. And um, we, the, the prosecutor who prosecutes their drug cases sits on the team. Uh, there's a police, there's a law enforcement representative because clearly it's important to have their involvement. We have treatment providers as well. So they have the, they have the addiction credentials to be able to work with the participants. The other thing I wanted to say was it was interesting what Mike said about the court. Yeah, if you could walk into my drug treatment court on um, Wednesday mornings, I don't wear my robe. Um, I stand um, in, um, toward, close to where the participants are seated, where the audience is. Um, when I call on them, they stand up. Um, it's, it's fairly reminiscent of an, of an AA meeting, but where they stand up so that the other participants can hear them clearly. But I don't have them come to the witness stand. I don't do that more formal type of thing because this really is – my view is it really does work better if the participants feel this more one-on-one -on -one connection talking with me, but also that the other participants are there either being supportive or shaking their heads depending upon what that particular participant is saying. And that the participants themselves actually um, are very, very good at, at um, either supporting each other or sort of calling each other out on, you know, something that may not may be less than truthful.
When, uh, well, when you talk about that, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is if, if we're looking at expanding these programs, are there going to be problems with efficiency? Well, and the thing about it is, is that that's why we have not expanded our court as we'd like to, because the more participants you have, I, you know, we have right now case managers. We have three case managers, and, and we have a coordinator. But if we would expand it, we would need additional case managers, and um, because we also, you know, need to be able to give the participants the kind of um, individual attention that they need as well. So that's a, that is an impediment to expanding them. Right now, about a little over a year ago, um, as um, we were, there was additional funding available, but it had to expand an existing, existing problem-solving court. We couldn't use it for um, just increasing the drug court itself. So we started a reentry court program, which is another version of a problem-solving court. Um, and in response to Mike was saying before about why he believes problem-solving courts are coming into existence, I agree with that. They're coming into existence because the criminal justice system, I believe, is recognizing that there are issues that need to be dealt with if you're going to get people out of the criminal justice system and make them, um, you know, law-abiding citizens. If you have a last-minute question for us, 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat uh, at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition or follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So I have a couple uh, questions for Mike. One is, what about the the idea of the, the caseworker uh, versus participant ratio, I and mean, what's a what's a good ratio? Oh, you know, I mean, impossible to say. The the the, the answer to that question is is actually that there is no scientific answer to the question because there are a number of models. Some drug court programs will have each case manager with caseload of seventy or eighty. That might seem overwhelming, but in the drug courts that do that, the case manager plays a sort of a traffic cop role and will be responsible for referring the participants out to treatment, but might not interact so much with the participants. Where you see ratios of you know more like one to 20, then the case manager is playing more of a treatment role. So, so the answer to the question is, it's complicated, but it depends a lot on the model and how the case managers are being used. Ultimately, you can have case managers with a high caseload if they play this traffic cop role, and if the treatment they're referring people to is high quality. Now, this isn't quite answering your question, but one thing we emphasize is when people actually get to treatment, if any of those treat if any if any of the treatment involves group sessions, we like those groups to be no larger than twelve. Otherwise, there's just too many people. You can't you know you can't do good cognitive behavioral therapy that's responsive to each of the individuals in the group. So once you get into treatment sessions, you like to see not too many people in those groups. But there are, there are a number of different models that use case managers in different ways and and might make it maybe possible for a program to increase its volume. The other question I was going to ask is about um, other kinds of uh, problem-solving courts. Judge Dekoff just mentioned the reentry court that has been started in Monroe County. Are there other unique kinds of problem-solving courts that you've studied? Yeah, there are, there are a lot of these models. The, the model that's most similar to drug courts, we call them mental health courts, and they can just be understood exactly the same as a drug court, except they tend to focus on defendants who have some other mental health disorder besides a substance addiction. They've also produced very positive results. Uh, the judge mentioned a, a reentry court. Actually, coincidentally, a colleague of mine just completed a, a, a randomized study of a reentry court here in New York City that found substantial reductions in both, in both uh, re-arrests, 
reconvictions and reincarcerations. So reentry courts are looking like a promising model, but reentry courts are pretty new. There aren't as many of them, and there aren't as many studies in the literature. And then finally, uh, uh, off in a, a different direction, a very popular model, there are more than 300 of these in the country, would be domestic violence courts. Now, the domestic violence court model is a bit different because they're, they're a little bit more focused on offender accountability than just treating the offender because they want to keep victims safe. So they're very focused on uh, uh, victim safety measures, and they're very focused on uh, uh, probably a little bit more emphasis, uh, there's probably a, a bit more of an emphasis on deterrence strategies in domestic violence courts than on rehabilitation strategies. Um, but that's another model that generally falls into problem-solving courts, and that, and that does share some practices with, with the others. So those are the primary models. That the, the, the last one, where there are fewer in the country, but they're growing, are community courts, and community courts are interesting. They don't focus on a particular type of problem of the defendant. They focus on the array of problems in a particular type of community, and, and currently there are upwards of 50-plus of those in the country, and there are about to be uh, a whole bunch more. So I, I, think I, I think I've quickly ticked off a lot of the main ones. Okay. As we're learning more about addiction, I've heard it even compared to something like ADHD, where it's a lifelong disease that follows you. So I'm wondering, after graduating from drug court, is there sort of this network where, you know, there's a support system that surrounds you forever or some, or even maybe something even um, more concrete than that, some sort of surveillance that continues for a long time? Right. We, um, we try to, um, after our participants have left the program, our graduates, we try to um, keep track of them um, if we can. One of the biggest problems we have is, of course, funding. But the second problem we have is that they're no longer part of the criminal justice system either. So, um, you know, usually you're not too inclined to want to just wander into the justice building. However, um, we just had a, a graduate come last week uh, who said he was working next door and he was um, beginning to feel a little bit um, some some anxiety about some things. So he came in and um, observed drug treatment court and talked to a couple of us afterwards. We encourage all of our participants to come to us if they if they're having issues if they. Um, need help with anything, that we're always there to assist them and help them. And that includes the ones that haven't um, been successful, so that we don't just shut the door on them and they know. The treatment providers in this community are very, very good as well. And so um, they, they have the opportunity to keep on with those treatment providers. And the goal of Drug Treatment Court is to have you go to AA or NA or their equivalent meetings um, to, so that you get used to the, going to those type of meetings and having a sponsor so that you can get used to that lifestyle and continue to use that lifestyle so that you can continue to um, um, live in sobriety and have those tools. So that's what we try to give them for those two years is the tools to be able to live the rest of their life. You sounded um, when you you mentioned uh, uh, setting up your court. It's almost like an AA meeting in some ways, and it sounds like that person that came back and visited was like somebody who needed to go to a meeting. Yes, you know? exactly. So, uh -huh. And and so he came he came to court, and we we have some of those frequently, and it's always really it, it does really make you feel good, and and we're there, and we recognize them, and then we you know this particular individual I talked with for a while, and and he said it just made him feel better to come and. Um, and, and so they, they know that they're always welcome to come to us, and, and we will try to do whatever we can for them or just be there for them like a meeting. Okay. So we're about out of time. I want to thank you, uh, Mike, Mike Rumpel, the Research Director of the Center for Court Innovation. Thanks. You've been great.
Thank you. Really enjoyed having you on. And Judge Mary Ellen Decoff, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. All right. For producer J.D. Gray, engineer Mike Patchcash, uh, engineer or, or another producer, Sophia Salovey, and Sarah Whitmire. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.